Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to open it to the letter of Galatians. If you don't have a Bible, there's one right there in the back, the little blue books there. You can grab one of those. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 11 through 14. So Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, that when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. You remember from last week that they ended on this note of gospel fellowship and harmony, agreement in the gospel. They're together for the gospel. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, ethnically, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles, these Christians, to live like Jews? So, that's it for today. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we, we come in this morning, we gather gone through another week where our minds, our hearts, our cares, our energies, our efforts, our labors have been split. They've been divided this way and that. And we need your help now. We've come together As members of this church, we've come together as one body to hear the Word of God. And so we need something much more than just a man talking about a text. We need the living God to take the Word of God and by the Spirit of God work this truth, the truth, of this text into our hearts to change us and make us something more to the glory of the gospel of grace. 
And we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ever since truth came into the world to be revealed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, it's been obvious that truth was meant to be fleshed out. Truth is meant to be fleshed out, and yet is so often covered up. And this happens because we either go the route of dismissing the claims of truth, we're careless with true content, or being all in on truth. Being all in on true content, we obscure that content by unbecoming conduct. What we really do believe and how we occasionally behave don't always match up. I just want you to hear this morning, Christians, dear ones, we really have two pulpits for preaching one Lord and His one gospel. We have the sacred desk and we have the sanctity of our lives. We have the pulpit, you might say, and we have our daily practice as believers. And just so it seems, a sad state of affairs in the church today. I think very clearly there's been this theological, biblical downgrade resulting in a real behavioral downgrade, even amongst believers. Just ask yourself the question now, where God, where theology is trivialized in the pulpit, will godliness long prevail or revive? among that people, where the content of the gospel is thinned out, will the conduct of the people be rich in grace? Now, to be fair, we have to ask, on the other hand, do we think that Peter was party to a post-truth or a post-modern pulpit? Or do we think that Barnabas acted the way that he does in our passage because he was a recipient of shallow teaching that was numb to the glory of truth and grace. No. So how do we explain their hypocrisy? How do we explain their conduct that's not aligned with the truth of the gospel? It's just that good teaching, while pivotal, is not paramount. It's pivotal, but God's owning our hearts and keeping our hearts by good teaching, that's paramount. You've got to have good teaching, but you've also got to have the grace of God utilizing that teaching to secure you in the truth. So, if you reviewed your actions this week, if you reviewed your actions this week, what sermons would you see? What would the recipients of the life that you lived this week, if I asked them, what sermons did you see in that person's life, what would they report? 
Have you and I lived this week realizing the power of example for better or for worse? And just so, has our conduct been in step or out of step with the truth of the gospel? And if ever the latter, if ever we've seen conduct, either in ourselves or others, that's out of step with the gospel, are we prepared, are we ready to be that good proverbial friend who for the sake of the gospel kisses by reproof? Let's come to our text and hear the account of conduct out of step with the truth of the gospel. The Lord is clearly working in Antioch. And Cephas, if you didn't know this, Cephas is Peter. Okay, Peter comes to see the Lord's working in Antioch. And while he's there, he's not only convinced of the Lord's working, but he happily heeds what God had told him in Acts chapter 10. If you remember this, nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. And God's like, listen, if I've made it clean, it's clean, Peter. Go and preach the gospel to the Gentile Cornelius. And so he embraces his freedom in Christ here. We need to see not to sin. That would be an abuse of our freedom in Christ, but he embraces his freedom in Christ and he enjoys this food and this table fellowship with Gentile Christians. And in that moment, Peter is acting in a way that displays the truth of the gospel. We are all, whether Jew or Gentile, if we are believers in Christ, we are all of us justified not by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's as true for me, Peter, as it is for these non-Jewish believers in Antioch and vice versa. And so that's where Peter is at the beginning of our text. Viewing justification rightly in Jesus, Peter is unencumbered, he's unhindered by any law of Moses from enjoying Christian fellowship with Gentiles who are real Christians. He was in hog heaven with people that he would share God's heaven with. But Paul tells us, you look at verse 12, that certain men then came from James. Now, that's the same James as in chapter 1, verse 19, and chapter 2, verse 9. It's the Lord's brother who was totally aligned with Paul on the one gospel, that Paul's gospel for the Gentiles and theirs for the Jews was one and the same gospel. Not two gospels or more, but one and the same gospel. And yet, it seems the best explanation for what happens now in the text is that James has some concern about reports of Peter's experimental extravagance. And we can sympathize with James, I think. Here's a pastoral case study for you. James is a Jewish Christian, and he's a leader in the church of Jerusalem. He's an apostolic missionary of the gospel, primarily to the Jews, and so is Peter. 
And though you wouldn't know it from our passage, this was a time when Jewish people were being what's called Hellenized. That is, they were being pressured out of their cultural heritage. They were being forced to forfeit the things that distinguished them as Jewish people for a more Gentile way of life. So what you have, as I do think we see in the passage, are three groups of Jewish people. Three groups. You have Jewish unbelievers called the circumcision party in our passage. And against foreign policy, they're doing everything they feel they must to preserve Judaism, including the persecution of Jewish Christians who are now finding their identity in Jesus Christ. Then you have those like James and his emissaries who are feeling that persecution in Jerusalem. And then, third, you have those like Peter who are going up to Antioch and sitting at table with Gentile Christians, and he is fully embracing one new man in Jesus. Pass me some more barbecue to the glory of Christ. I love the smell of bacon. And so maybe you can get a sense of James's concern and what he sends these men to ask of Peter. It's probably, I don't know for certain, but probably something like, brother, we love you, but Jewish persecution against the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem is intensifying because of how you are conducting yourself among the Gentiles. Do you think you could temper it just a little bit? Now, whether or not we agree with what James might have said, I think we can understand it. I think we can sympathize with James's heart without necessarily landing in the same spot. It's clear that Paul doesn't land in the same spot. And it's also clear that we should not land in the same spot if, in fact, that is what James was after. But I want you to see that Peter does land in that spot. And it's fair to ask ourselves, what would you, what would I have done in this very difficult scenario? This scenario is in the path of the truth of the gospel. It's in the path of take up your cross and follow me. So would you or I have kept in step with the truth of the gospel at this point? Would we have forged ahead even if a respected brother or sister or pillar in the church gave us advice to the contrary? Or would we have walked out of the way. Peter walks out of the way. He jukes the cross. Like the false teachers, as Paul will say, Peter doesn't want to be persecuted for the offense that is the cross of Christ. However, it's justified as caring for the saints in Jerusalem. It's understandable. Listen, beloved, 
We're not to seek out persecution. Seek it out. But when it seeks us out on account of conduct true to the gospel, we're called to count our life forfeit to the glory of Christ before bowing to pressure, esteeming comfort, disassociating life from truth, and ultimately playing the hypocrite. But that's what Peter does. He receives James's word and counsel. Why not, right? It's James. And out of fear of what he's heard about the circumcision party and what they're doing in Jerusalem, he stops eating with the Gentile Christians. He withdraws himself and separates his fellowship from their fellowship. And if you hear all of that and you start thinking, that sounds really strange and foreign to me. We're talking about eating. I don't get it. I get it. But when we lived in Boston, some of you may not know, we moved down here about five years ago from Boston. We were in a little suburb with the third largest concentration of Jewish people in the world. And you had three unbelieving sorts. You had the entirely Hellenized. You couldn't tell them from fallen Adam. Okay? That's one. They were indistinct from anyone else in the world. And then you had Naomi. Uh, we'd have Naomi over for dinner, and we'd eat kosher in an attempt to sort of awkwardly share Jesus with her. And then you had, if you will, the circumcision party. And if they would condescend to table fellowship with you, a Gentile, at all, forget the food being kosher. The very instruments you use for cooking the food had to be kosher. The oven could never have had food in it that they considered unclean. They were that serious about Moses, about purity laws, and I think we would say self-righteous identity markers. And we knew some Jewish Christians in the area who struggled, I would say, to be all that different in their thinking. So, at James's behest, Peter withdrew. And at Peter's withdrawal, all the Jewish Christians in Antioch withdrew, including Barnabas. You can almost sense Paul's shock in that one, especially. Even Barnabas, verse 13, was led astray by their hypocrisy. So Peter's withdrawal went viral. His acting against what he believed to be true, that's hypocrisy, it went viral amongst other believers. And in its wake, a potentially destructive message is effectively and dramatically sent to the Gentile Christians. And the message is this, you are not equals with Jewish 
Christians. To have and keep fellowship with us, you have to, verse 14, live like Jews also. You have to become a practicing Jew to be counted an equal, an acceptable, a justified, a true Christian. That's the message that's sent. Faith in Jesus is not enough. Either for you or for us. But we have the upper hand, you see? Because we're Jewish. And if you would have that hand in fellowship, well... Is there a rabbi nearby other than Jesus? This coming from a Jewish man who still had barbecue sauce rightly smeared all over his face. It's imperative to remember though, Peter doesn't believe that. He doesn't believe what his actions preached. Nor does he actually preach that with his mouth. We're talking about his conduct, you see? His action preaches that. And actions are often much louder than our words. There's a terrible irony in it. Here's how one put it, quote, by attempting to preserve the integrity of Jewish Christians as Jewish people. Peter destroys the integrity of Gentile Christians as Christians. He might have preserved their Jewish ethnic cultural identity for a moment, but at what cost? At the cost of unsettling the faith of real, albeit Gentile, Christians. At the cost of compromising the truth of the gospel for the whole world, that regardless of ethnicity or anything else, Jesus saves sinners. And that the faith that unites the sinner, unites us to Him is all that's required by God to be a full-on child of God. And the only reason this action does not do its worst is because Paul saw it and took action against it. Peter stood condemned, Paul says, for his hypocrisy. And as that hypocrisy was public, Paul you see in verse 11, opposed him to his face before them all, verse 14. And because he does that, the truth of the gospel is preserved for all. Gentiles are not to be forced to live like Jews, just as Titus was not forced to be circumcised, to be justified and accepted by God. Faith in Jesus suffices for every believer. That's it. So there, we've heard the account. What about the lessons? What lessons can we draw out of it that we need to heed? Here's the first one. 
so glorious. There is a truth of a gospel (laughs) that our lips and our lives are to align to commend. It comes in our next passage, which is just going to be a continuation of this one, but you're going to have to wait a couple weeks for it. It's in chapter 2, verse 16. This is what Paul says there. We know. Do you know this, Christian? We know that a person, by that he means Jew or Gentile, we know that a person is not justified or literally counted righteous. A person is not counted righteous by God by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. Your works cannot save you. And there, biblical Christianity is distinguished from every other religion in the world. Your works cannot save you, but Jesus can save you. And He does save everyone who believes. And I just want us all to be able to rest there this morning. After last week's sermon, uh, Jenny said she did not know why, but in hearing that God has justified us, not by any works that we have done, but solely through faith in what Jesus has done for us. All her thinking was, wonderful, great, okay, now tell me what I need to do. We can all kind of feel that, don't we? Grace is so free. We almost plead for commands. <laughs> Please, tell, me, tell me what I got to do. I got to do something. I need commands. I need imperatives. And I'm like, the imperatives are coming. But first he starts with the indicatives. And she's like, I know, I get it. But the imperatives just play no part, no part at all in our justification, which is what Paul's dealing with here. By works, verse 16, no one will be justified. So the point is, not one of us could save ourselves. If we could, he's going to say, there would be no need for the cross of Jesus Christ. But as Christ was crucified, God has let us know very clearly, I can save you, and I alone. So if you're a Christian, let me just encourage you not to be thinking, okay, now tell me what i got to do. Let me encourage you to just rest in what Christ has done for you and let it be enough. In Jesus, God has done all that needed doing for sinners to be saved so that through faith in Jesus and nothing more and nothing else beside, God happily justifies us. God fully accepts us. God has equated our standing with His Son. 
remarkable. And therefore, we are qualified. He has qualified us for glory forever. There is a truth of the gospel that our lips and our lives are to align to commend. But next then, see this. Even pillars in the church can step out of alignment and distort that truth. I was recently listening to a podcast featuring someone that I would consider pillar-like among more Western biblical Christianity. He's a figure. He's a very sound brother. But the episode was about comments he'd made around like-minded brothers. We get around like-minded folks. We tend to get unhinged a little bit, right? So he gets around like-minded brothers, and he says these things that were demeaning or demoting of other Christians with a different take. And in love, one of those other brothers brought it to his attention, leading the brother in question to give an entire episode for airing grievances, for agreeing over his error, and for asking for forgiveness. This man is in his early 60s. <laughs> He's been pastoring for a long time. He's a great man of great understanding, with great love for all things Jesus and souls, and yet he admittedly towed the line of Christian equality over otherwise important issues of church polity. Let us be very slow to sit in our seats this morning and cast judgment. He who is without sin, she who is without sin, let them cast the first stone. I'll tell you right now, that stone would not come from Peter. It wouldn't come from James. It wouldn't come from James' disciples. It wouldn't come from Barnabas. There's only one man who could throw that stone. We know him as Jesus. Dear ones, just think now. Barnabas was called the son of consolation, the son of comfort, the son of encouragement. Don't you want to be known like that? Jared Weaver, the son of encouragement. He was a seasoned veteran of international missionary labors alongside the Apostle Paul. And Barnabas left the path of truth right here. James grew up with Jesus. Mary was his mom. Joseph was his dad. He was converted when his resurrected brother appeared to him face to face. 1 Corinthians 15. He's a leader in the church in Jerusalem. He's fully on board with Paul's gospel of all-sufficient grace. 
But James seems here to have at least opened the way for leaving the path of truth. Or he taught his disciples very well, only for his disciples to be poor disciples at this point. The disciples of James. And then there's Peter. Disciple of Jesus. Identifier of Jesus as the Christ of God. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter. Restored by Jesus. Peter, do you love me? Oh Lord, you know I do. Preacher at Pentecost. 3,000 souls saved. One sermon. Apostle to the Jews. Heir of visions. About the cleanliness of table fellowship with Gentile Christians. So, you think Peter would be above this departure? Don't you think Peter would be past fearing man? He doesn't fear man in Acts chapter 4. They're like, oh, His courage, His boldness, we can tell He's been with Jesus. So why now does Peter elevate the appeasement of man over the gospel of God, the glory of Christ, and the good of the church? Don't you think that Peter would have grown out of slinging mud on the cross of Jesus Christ? Oh, you're not going to go to that cross. Get out of my way, Satan. But here he is again. Again. Adding yet another denial to the three we know he had already committed. And somewhere in all that, humility is knocking. (laughs) And maybe it's at the door of your heart. What we believe to be true is going to be tested in life. And as it has been, have you and I always stayed true to what we know to be true? Has our conduct always been lock and step with the truth of the gospel? Of course not. And so I love the simplicity of Tom Schreiner. He's one of my professors in seminary. He reminds us, learn this. Quote, we cannot live on yesterday's grace. We need fresh grace for each new day. What we were enabled to be for the gospel yesterday is in the past. But as we're called to live for the gospel today, we can't have yesterday puffing us up, making us think that we can be independent of the grace of God, making us think that we can be self-reliant and go on as usual before and still be just as faithful. Without grace today and tomorrow and the next, 
Even pillars in the church like Peter and James and John and Barnabas and Paul and whoever else are like to crumble at the slightest testing. And when they do, the departure is not isolated in its effects. And that's the next brief lesson here. It gets us into talking about this thing called sin. Beloved, if you go read Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, it says something that we really need to understand and lay to heart. It says, sin has a desire. It has a lust. And its lust is for you. Its lust is for you. And 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 you. It thirsts to take every single one of us into its lair to destroy us. James may open the way for this. But Peter, when he doesn't have to, walks through the door. He walks through the way that's been opened. And then, when all the Jewish Christians saw Peter walk through this door that James has opened, what do they do? They all go with Peter. They do the exact same thing. And then Barnabas, even Barnabas, is wrapped up into this hypocrisy. You see it? Church, listen. We are a local body of Jesus Christ. We've got to stop thinking of our sins in isolation from the body. We don't know how our unbecoming conduct might be leveraged by a real devil to lead others here into the same dissonance with the truth of the gospel. We don't know. But we do know that devil is looking for opportunities all the time. How can I use his complacency? How can I use his spiritual laziness, his apathy, his lack of appetite for Christ? How can I utilize or use her rudeness, her unkindness? How can I utilize their individualism? How can I take that pillar's pride and fears and carelessness to draw others into the same departure? What and or who can I leverage among them to bring disrepute and slander upon the truth of the gospel? But on the flip side, does not grace carry an even greater multiplying power? Does not the Spirit of Christ have even stronger desires and ability to bring and keep all living a life that's worthy of the gospel? 
You think sin will spread? I'll tell you what will spread. Godliness will spread. Is that what your life is spreading? Is it spreading conduct out of step with the truth of the gospel or conduct that's in step with the truth of the gospel? Or moving along, let me ask this. Where you see a Christian living out of step with the gospel, is your regard for the gospel great enough to do what Paul does here? It's another vital lesson. What happens? I mentioned this scenario earlier in the podcast, the episodes, this brother and all this. What happens if Kevin DeYoung does not reprove one of my heroes, Mark Dever? What happens? What happens if Paul does not publicly oppose Peter to his face? I think we can suppose that this cross-nullifying action might have spread throughout the world like a disease. Loved ones, listen. It is critical for your spiritual health that you have Paul's in your life. Critical. Now, that is not at all in our nature to want, possess, or appreciate. When we began to do pastoral visits here at this church, and I got to asking souls about sin in their life, it was an unusual occurrence that wasn't always greatly appreciated. But probably because it was unusual. It's sad to say this. But even in the church, we are not used to people loving us enough to take an interest in the Christianity of our lives. We aren't used to pastors pastoring us enough to hold us accountable for meeting the gospel standard. We aren't used to a church that understands the Christ-likeness of the church as missions critical. Yeah, I hear what you're saying about Jesus, but I know so many people in your church and they live worse than I do. And they hate each other. We are not used to love being defined as holiness that frees us up to address each other's sins. Take that big, thick log out of your own eye so that you can see clearly not to leave the splinter in your brother or sister's eye, but to take the splinter out. That's what Jesus says. It's not to leave it alone. 
It's to be holy enough to hold each other accountable for gospel conduct when we've gone astray. And if we're going to be together for the gospel, we need to be able to get comfortable with that. We need it. Peter and all the rest in this passage and all the Gentile Christians who are disconsoled because of what Peter has done need Paul's rebuke. Because Peter's sin was public and populating and broadly disconsoling, Paul's rebuke is not private. You see that? It rightly skips over Matthew 18's due process and goes straight before the church that is right there present. And in so doing, Paul immediately preserves the truth of the gospel. Galatians, he preserves the truth of the gospel for the world. We said it a week ago. We'll say it now again. No man is bigger than the truth of the gospel. I fear there are many in ministry who have no business being in ministry because others who know that they shouldn't be cared more about preserving their friend's reputation than about preserving their Savior's reputation. Paul does not care one lick about covering for Peter because, oh, he's Peter. Not one lick. Peter steps out of the path of gospel truth and therefore Paul right there takes his stand. The gospel is bigger than Peter. Do you and I see and love righteousness? Do we know what it is well enough to see sin and call it so? Would we have seen Peter's actions? Would we have seen Peter's actions and done the same? Would we have gone with him? Or in his action would we have seen condemnable hypocrisy with the potential to destroy the true faith of others? Would we have seen a gospel-distorting action that needed swift opposition and publicly? Do we know steps that are out of step with the gospel? And what such steps should compel us to do? If Paul sees Peter's action here and does not rebuke Peter here, is Paul not an accomplice to the distortion of the gospel? Thank the triune God, he speaks up. He opposes Peter, shows him his error, 
and draws everyone back to conduct in step with the truth of the gospel. We are all justified through faith in Jesus. Hold that line. You force them to be Jewish, to be your equals in Christ, you've lost the line. You've let it go. You're out of line. Peter, James, Barnabas, all these Jewish Christians, you, me, whoever, if that's what we've done, we need to repent. Which is a final lesson here. We need to ask this question, is there any difference between Peter on the one hand and the false brothers on the other? You see them in chapter 2, verse 4. And if so, what's the difference? Because the charge is the exact same. If you look at verse 14, Paul charges Peter with forcing the Gentiles. You see that word there? Forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews. It's the same word as in chapter 2, verse 3, when he said they, including Peter, did not force Titus to be circumcised contrary to the will of the false brothers. Here's the difference then. Peter does not believe what his action preached. He doesn't believe that. The false Christians believe. Judaism has to be added to faith in Christ in order for you to be justified. Peter doesn't believe that. What he did preached that But Peter doesn't believe that. He was hypocritical. And he was repentant. I think. Where it is right that they should do so, hear this, real Christians repent. They aren't found in their sin only to kick and scream and self-justify No. Justified in Christ. We grieve our sin. We despise our shame. And we just call it as it is. Paul, you got me. Lord, you got me. We condemn ourselves and then we lean again into the blood-bought grace of Jesus. Please, Lord, forgive me. Please, Lord, change me. Like, really change me. Make me something different than what I was here. Please, Lord, set me straight again. And the entire New Testament, Jesus' Prayer for Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail, and so his faith isn't going to fail. you got Peter's restoration. You need to turn back. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, I do, I do, I do. You have 
First Peter, the letter, First Peter, you have Second Peter, right? You have even this account. The entire New Testament leads us to believe repentance is exactly what Peter did. And he found grace, all sufficient from Jesus. Yet again. He repented publicly of an action that preached. Your faith in Jesus is not enough to justify you as Christians equal with us in God. In that vein, is there anything of which we need to repent today? Is there anything that you and I might have added to faith in Christ that if someone else does not possess that thing, they're not as Christian as we are? Maybe not even a Christian. We want to be really careful. We want to be really careful. Because granted a heart that desires to be obedient to the Word of God, granted that, one can be more or less obedient to Scripture without being more or less justified in Christ. For instance, a little hanger here for later on in Galatians. Should you be baptized as a believer? We believe as a church that is what the Bible teaches. But whether you have or have not yet, does that mean that you, the believer, have a greater or lesser standing with God than any other true believer in Christ? I think the answer has to be it does not. Your standing with God as a justified person is owing entirely to what Jesus has done for you. So we need to be careful there. And if there is any kind of Pharisee in us before Christ, we need to repent. Friend, if you're not a believer, I want to be very clear here, we are all of us in here, in this room, this morning, sinners that could not and cannot save ourselves. We all of us needed the Savior that only Jesus is. This certain truth of the gospel is that if you would only believe in Jesus, God will gladly justify you, forgive you of your sins, count you righteous in Christ, adopt you as His child, accept you as an eternal heir of grace and glory. And as that is the truth, won't you believe it? Church, don't miss the point in all this. Paul has the gospel right. Do we? That's our labor and that's our glory this morning. And not just with our lips, but with our lives. Safeguarding the gospel. That's what Paul's doing. Safeguarding the gospel is a whole body, whole life hike. In step with the gospel. 
And with that in mind, may the Lord supply us with everything that we need, rebukes and everything else, if only to have our lives preaching the all-sufficiency of the grace of Jesus for sinners. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. It is living, it is active. In your sovereign grace, cause it to live and to act in every single heart that is now sat under the preaching of your word. We ask it for the good of every soul and for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.